0: Hi and welcome to PCI-PAL's podcast channel, Secure Payments. My name is Geoff Forsyth. As it's a new year, I thought I would talk about a few of the regulatory and compliance items that are currently top of my inbox. The things you need to be aware of as we move further into 2021. So the five agenda items for CISOs this year are GDPR compliance post-Brexit, remote working, Compliance in the Cloud, PCI DSS version 4, and PSD2 SCA. So they're all hot topics, and these will be my points of discussion in today's episode. Starting with GDPR compliance post-Brexit. Well, it's finally happened. The UK is no longer part of the EU or the EEA. Many of us are left wondering, what does this mean for GDPR compliance? If your company rarely takes personal or financial details from EU citizens, even those currently living in the UK, then you do not need to do anything. If, however, you regularly handle the names, addresses, and financial details of EU citizens, then your company needs to ensure compliance with GDPR. This involves ensuring that EU citizens can make data information requests to you, asking for details of information that you may hold about them and there must be a legal contact point within an EU country for them to do this. So the long and the short of that is that you'll need to hire a legal representative in the EU to look after EU citizen access requests for you. So lots of work for lawyers. Secondly, your company needs to have processes in place to prove to the EU regulator You are handling citizens' data in a secure manner that meets GDPR rules and regulations. This normally comes down to putting standard contractual clauses in place (SCCs) with your suppliers. On that government guidance piece, whilst the UK transition period ended on the 31st of December 2020, with no permanent agreement in place regarding ongoing EU data protection, the UK and the EU has agreed to a six month bridging mechanism for the continued free flow of personal data from the EU EEA to the UK in the multiple hope of a data processing adequacy decision in the UK's favour. Additionally, the GDPR has been copied into UK law in the European Union Withdrawal Act 2018 and the Data Protection Act 2018 also remains in place binding the UK to internationally recognised high standards of data protection. However, if the European Commission does not make an adequacy decision regarding the UK, by the end of the six-month bridging period, the UK will become a third country to the EU and will be subject to increased regulatory restrictions on a data transfer from the eu EEA to the UK basis. EU partners should be given information relating to the legal basis for processing. And the government has recommended standard contractual clauses, which are sort of model data protection clauses that have been approved by the European Commission and enable the free flow of personal data when embedded in a contract. Such standard contractual clauses have been drafted in line with the guidance and are available from the UK ICO website. On the subject of SCCs, standard contractual clauses, unfortunately, these legally approved EU wordings that help solve the GDPR compliance issues with non-EU countries have themselves got into a legal mess during 2020. This is due to a legal case where the Austrian privacy activist, Max Schrems, brought a case against Facebook in Ireland saying that they should not transfer EU citizens' data to the United States as the US does not have adequate data protection laws in place to stop the US government and its agencies from spying on the data. You can look up the details of the Max Schrems case. But Max won, and in doing so, invalidated the standard contractual clause framework that was in place at the time. The European Data Protection Board published in December detailed recommendations on how companies should respond to the Max Schrems decision. They have totally rewritten the SCC framework in the last six months to put new legally binding clauses in place that allows companies to show adequate steps have been taken to ensure EU citizen data privacy. The original now defunct SCCs applied to controller to controller and controller to processor transfers. The new SCCs now cover four different potential data transfer scenarios, controller to controller, controller to processor, as before, but also processor to processor and processor to controller. By way of clarification, processor to controller transfers refer to a scenario where a non-EEA controller, which may shortly include a UK controls after the six month bridging mechanism expires, is where they appoint an EEA processor to process non-EEA data which the EEA processor then transfers back to the non-EEA controller. Very confusing, huh? Anyway, uh, the commission draft indicates that um, more than two parties can adhere or accede to a single set of contractual clauses, potentially limiting the number of separate contracts that companies must sign when onboarding new vendors or service providers, which is currently an onerous task. These new SCCs will be published shortly, and once in place, companies will have 12 months to implement them. So lots of contract rewriting and addendum updates for your compliance team to get stuck into, I'm sorry to say. Let's take a look at homeworking. We had all hoped to be back to our workplace offices by the end of 2020, or at least some of us, but that unfortunately didn't happen. In fact, Having been forced to work from home, many companies have decided to permanently adopt the strategy and continue a home worker regime going forward. But how do we secure sensitive data being processed remotely? Well, firstly, you have to map out how sensitive data, particularly credit card data, flows through your company. Maybe you have a website with an online shopping component or a call center that takes payments over the phone or your account department takes payment details via email or post. Then you have to work out exactly where the sensitive data is stored and what equipment it passes through. Companies should evaluate the additional risks associated with processing payment data in unsecured locations and implement controls accordingly. The home environment is an unsecured location and therefore contains extra risks. Many businesses use point-of-sale terminals to take payments but it's not practical to give each remote worker their own pin pad and ask them to enter credit card data at home. Alternate methods are online virtual payment screens but again a home worker is having to ask for the credit card information and enter it manually into a web form. The PCI Standard Security Council published guidance in 2018 on protecting telephone-based payments. And this informational supplement does make recommendations on securing card data for remote and home workers. You can download a copy from the council's website at pci-securitystandards.org. Just Google protecting telephone-based payment card data. It has a section on additional risks and guidance in complex telephony environments. And this includes paying particular attention to home workers. On the admin side, ensure you update your organization's policies and processes that apply to remote workers. This means policies should clearly prohibit any unauthorized copying, moving, sharing, or storing of payment card data. And remote staff need to be aware of their physical surroundings, taking care to prevent sensitive information from being viewed by unauthorized persons. Also ensure your staff update themselves on the latest policies and make sure that all staff receive security awareness training that emphasizes the importance of data security. Keep reminding remote staff of how important security awareness is as part of their daily sign in process. PCI DSS provides several security requirements that should be implemented to protect remote workers. Use multi-factor authentication when logging in from outside the company's network. Enforce a strong password policy. So never share passwords. Educate staff on the importance of keeping passwords safe. Use a password manager system so that remote staff can log into the secure system without ever knowing the password used as it's hidden by the password manager. Staff just need to know one password, their own master password. Ensure only staff that need access to cardholder data are given access. Ensure company incident response plans are up to date and include accurate contact details for key personnel working remotely. So where does the IT department come in? Well, IT really do have their work cut out when it comes to ensuring remote workers have a secure workplace to operate in. A basic checklist for the IT department goes something like this. Ensure that equipment that's used at home is company owned. Laptops and desktop terminals should have personal firewalls installed and operational. Equipment should have all up-to-date corporate virus protection software. And you should have the latest approved security patches installed. Laptops and desktop terminals should be configured to prevent users from disabling the security controls. Ensure that stolen or mislaid equipment has systems to remotely wipe the hard drive if needed. Only use secure encrypted communications, in other words, a VPN, to ensure that all internet traffic is secure. You should set it up so, so that laptops automatically disconnect remote users after a period of inactivity, say 15 minutes. And uninstall or disable applications and software that are not needed in order to reduce the attack surface. And now onto the actual home workers themselves. They are going to need constant training reminders about privacy and security, as their home working environment will be very different from being in the office. Home workers should not write down credit card numbers or email them around. Written card data will likely not be securely shredded after use in a home working environment. Home workers should not repeat credit card numbers out loud. Numbers read out loud will be overheard by other members of the household and visitors. Home workers should not be recording their calls. Finally, don't leave company laptops in plain sight. As remote workers will not be able to talk face-to-face, additional checks may be needed to verify the identity of users calling IT for support. So all staff should be trained to be aware of potential phishing calls. IT support teams should be prepared to identify rogue calls from people claiming to be remote users. And remote staff should know how to confirm that a person who phones them claiming to be from IT or another part of the company is legitimate. Our next topic for discussion, compliance in the cloud. Public cloud solutions such as Amazon AWS, Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud have experienced massive growth during the last few years, and they have helped companies offer remote working and home working capabilities. But what compliance issues need to be considered when moving to or utilizing public cloud systems? Using one of the big public cloud companies does give certain advantages when it comes to security and compliance. These companies have spent billions of dollars on ensuring that hardware infrastructure is both secure and meets the numerous global legal compliance standards. So you can piggyback on the systems put in place to protect the big players such as Facebook, Glapso-SmithKline, Netflix, Apple, levels of security that normal sized companies could never afford. Again, the PCI-SSC has produced an information supplement, Cloud Computing Guidelines, April 2018, that discusses these questions in detail It's a good document, but a little bit abstract in places. However, definitely worth downloading a copy. The Cloud Computing Guidelines say things such as specialist technical knowledge and skills are needed to implement cloud security. And that it is important to engage with technical, legal, due diligence, informational security, and compliance teams. So the guide is very focused on understanding the risks involved evaluating different service options, defining and documenting exactly who's responsible for what, and regularly reviewing the services and written agreements you have in place with the cloud provider. But the number one rule, it's always compliance is your responsibility, not the cloud provider. So having decided to go for a public cloud solution, the first compliance question becomes, who's responsible for what? Cloud providers offers offer various levels of, of service depending on how much technical infrastructure you wish to maintain yourself and how much you wish the cloud provider to support for you. The typical three levels are infrastructure as a service, that's I-A-A-S. Customers get to build and control virtual servers and networks, devices themselves. Then there's platform as a service, P-A-A-S. The servers, operating system and network infrastructure taken care of by the cloud provider you just install your programs and programming code into that environment and lastly we have software as a service sas this is where the cloud provider does everything including the software so systems such as office 365 salesforce dropbox sage are all classic examples of sas applications whichever type of service you decide to build you will need to create a responsibility matrix that defines who's responsible for what. So it's a shared responsibility model. In the IaaS scenario, the cloud provider is responsible for ensuring the physical hardware, cabling, building security of the data center in use to meet the PCI DSS guidelines. The customer, so that's you, are responsible for ensuring that everything built on top of that hardware is compliant. So. The security of the cloud is handled by the cloud provider and they make sure that's tight, but it's the security in the cloud that you have to look after and treat very carefully. As you build your security in the cloud system, it's important to check that all the locations and services you use have been certified as compliant by the cloud provider's QSA. That way you can prove to your QSA that the cloud provider has taken care of it. If you're using a cloud service that isn't listed as compliant with the cloud provider's AOC, then responsibility for proving its compliance rests with you. When it comes to infrastructure as a service, IIS, the cloud provider is merely providing a virtual hypervisor and now allowing you to install your own virtual network inside it, something they call a virtual private cloud or a VPC for short. Access to the VPC and secure communications within and between other VPCs that you may create are 100% controlled by you, the customer. So it's critically important to ensure you have it locked down tight. Within PCI Pal, we took the decision to create various VPCs for our cloud platform. Dedicated VPCs were created for admin, agent web interfaces, and telephony connections. One advantage of VPCs is that they can span multiple data centers within a region called an availability zone. So if one data center fails, the service will continue to operate. Once you have a couple of virtual private clouds running, it's time to deploy some servers within them. Amazon offer a large variety of virtual machine images called AMIs within its marketplace. And a simple launch wizard is used to spin these up into dedicated machine instances running within your VPC. Of course, that means that the AMIs must be hardened as dictated by PCI DSS requirement 2.2 and regularly patched as requirement 6.2 says. Again, the cloud provider can help with this. Amazon AWS, for instance, provides pre-hardened machine images for various operating systems. These machine images are automatically updated to include the latest software updates and patches. So once a month, you can relaunch your servers using the latest machine image and the associated operating system will include all the latest and greatest fixes available. PCI business as usual requirements include daily monitoring of log files and other compliance monitoring. This can be automated and there are companies that have security as a service offerings across all the public clouds. These companies will automate the daily log grind Turning it into a 24 7 operation so you become aware of potential problems immediately, not the following day. Also, you do not have to perform the manual checks yourself. So, a quick summary public cloud compliance is a shared responsibility model. Although AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google Cloud are PCI compliant, that does not mean that customer environments are automatically compliant. Cloud platform PCI compliance allows customers to accelerate their own compliance. Since AWS AWS is a PCI-compliant service provider, customers do not need to assess its compliant infrastructure. A PCI assessor only needs to review the AWS attestation of compliance and the responsibility matrix documents to validate the compliance of the infrastructure. Cloud platforms are constantly developing and deploying new services. While not all services are covered under the PCI DSS attestation, You can still use out-of-scope services. If you do use an out-of-scope service, your PCI assessor must review it to ensure that your configuration meets compliance requirements. Our next topic for discussion is the up-and-coming PCI DSS version 4. Much on this topic has already been discussed in the media, so I'll give you a brief recap. Firstly, on timings. We have the second draft of PCI DSS version 4 released in September 2020. This update was based upon over a thousand comments and feedback submitted by relevant organizations, PCI PAL included. Um, That was based on the initial release in October 2019. So whilst the document will undergo further tweaking, no one's expecting a major change moving forward. We should see the official release during 2021 and that will trigger a sunset period for the current PCI DSS version 3.2.1, giving organizations an 18 month period to get to grips with and embrace new requirements. So what's new in version four? Well, the big changes are that testing has to be a continuous process, not just taking a snapshot once a year at audit time. The documentation tells assessors they should select samples over a period of time. Additionally, compensated controls, longer troubling aspect of PCI compliance have gone. Instead, we're moving to an an intent approach where the assessor can look at what the PCI rules are trying to achieve and then judge if the organization has systems in place to meet that intent. So it allows the assessor to be subjective and organizations can work with their QSA to come up with customized approaches if needed, to meet some requirements. This is likely to make auditing a longer process and therefore more expensive. Sorry, everyone. On the more technical side, the standard has been generally updated to embrace cloud technologies. So words such as firewall and router are out. Instead, it's network security controls. Also, terms such as antivirus have become anti-malware password management has changed based upon the latest NIST recommendations, so passwords must be longer, now a minimum length of 12 characters, and whilst they still can contain special characters, it is no longer a requirement to use them. The only requirement is a mixture of numbers and letters, so it's a move to an easy-to-remember, hard-to-guess approach. Also new passwords must be checked against a list of known bad passwords, so rainbow tables or NCSC lists of the 100,000 words passwords, perhaps. Multi-factor authentication becomes mandatory on accounts with access to the cardholder data environment. And as statistics show that 70% of breaches start from phishing attacks, the requirement to train all staff to recognize social engineering attacks has also been added. So all in all, a greatly improved document. Our next topic is a quick look at PSD2 legislation, particularly the requirement for stronger customer authentication, SCA, because that's now in force across Europe and must be in place by mid-September within the UK. The Payment Security Directive is a European regulation designed to open up banking and make financial services more integrated. It began back in 2007 and has progressively been coming into force since 2018. As part of the regulations in an attempt to significantly reduce fraud across the EU, it demands that customers making online credit card transactions must be challenged with some form of strong customer authentication. This involves the use of some form of two-factor auth, normally sending an SMS code to the customer's mobile and asking them to input it into the website. Many companies are struggling with this as it adds significant friction to the purchasing process. And we're already seeing a large rise in abandonment of online shopping carts. SCA became mandatory across Europe from the 1st of January, but UK companies still have until mid-September to get themselves sorted. To help get around the friction problem, companies have options to flag certain transactions as out of scope or exempt from SCA. Out of scope includes payments over the phone to call centers and scheduled payments where the merchant has pre-agreed authorization with the cardholder to make the transaction. On the exemption side, low value, so below 30 euros, are not subject to SCA, and the merchant can perform a risk analysis on the customer, submitting electronic tags within the transaction to the payment gateway, to say that the customer is trusted and they are willing to take the risk. Exemptions are going to be key to the experience customers have with merchants. Most merchants do not want to do a full 2FA on customers, so they will use exemptions all the way down the line. Unfortunately, it's not up to the merchant or their acquiring bank to make the call as to whether a transaction is risky or not. This is determined by the issuing bank. So that's the bank that supplies the credit card to the cardholder. If they are not convinced that the transaction is genuine, then they can refuse the transaction, even though the merchant, the payment gateway and the acquiring bank are happy to proceed. Refusals of this type are known as soft declines. And we're expecting to see a ramp up of soft declines during 2021, starting in May. So what can merchants do to stop getting soft declines? Well. Information about transaction risk analysis carried out by the merchant is passed over the internet via the payment gateway and acquiring bank to the card issuer using the 3D Secure protocols backed by Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. The latest version of 3D Secure allows for lots of extra exemption information about the transaction to be included in the flow. And the issuing bank uses this extra information as the basis for their decision whether to accept or soft decline the payment. So, it's important to ensure that you are using the latest 3D secure software, currently 3DS 2.3. Secondly, you need to keep fraud rates low. If fraud rates rise within your company, then the acquiring bank is likely to flag all transactions as risky and demand strong customer authentication on everything, adding significant friction and increasing card abandonment. It's all currently a bit of a muddle, so thank goodness UK banks and merchants have till September to get things sorted. Knowledge is key. Understanding your fraud rates, talking to your acquirer, using the latest version of 3D Secure. Good luck on your SCA journey. Well, that's me done. Five things I believe CISOs need to consider in 2021. Thank you for joining me. If you have any questions, feel free to email info at PCIPal.com and I'll ensure that I get back to you. If you've liked what you've heard, remember to like and subscribe to our channel. And for more material on data security and PCI compliance, check out our Knowledge Center at PCIpal.com.